Um, I'm not against its use and I certainly eat things that contain MSG, <laughs> but it's like, it's like any flavor. If you overuse salt, you will get so used to really salty food that you need it on everything and nothing That's tastes true. good with you salt. If Similar you to like hot sauce. Some people like with hot sauce, you know, they exactly. have to put hot you sauce on everything. Head, and then food just doesn't taste good unless you're dumping the Tabasco out. And so I think, you know, all flavors have their place, but if but they have to be balanced with other flavors and they need, you can't just, let, let me give you an example of, have you ever seen the tahin? It's this little powdered lime chili salt combination that goes on fruit in on mangoes and things in mexico anyway you can buy it it's t-a-g-j-i-n it's delicious it's absolutely exquisite you start putting that on your eggs you start putting it on and then suddenly you're going food just doesn't isn't right i need some i need more of this my son's doing that now and it's just like i have to say like let's, let's hide this for just just a few days so your taste buds come back because you 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 grow dependent on that like pecans salty spicy sourness Hey everybody, welcome back to the Way Ramen Podcast. On today's episode, I sit down with Professor Ken Albala, a food historian from the University of the Pacific. Ken has written 25 books on the history of food, one of which was completely dedicated to noodle soups. Ken came onto my radar when I was doing some research for my homemade katsubushi project. Elvin in the Discord server pointed me to Ken's blog and his appearance on Japanese TV where he flew to Japan to learn to make katsubushi at a real factory. I thought it might be fun to get him on the show and talk about his katsubushi experiments and compare them to my own and also talk about his experiences being on Japanese TV. So I asked him just out of the blue and to my surprise he said yes, he'd come on the show. So here he is. So Ken is not a ramen nerd or ramen chef like most of us who listen to this podcast or are on the podcast. But I thought his takes on food, especially the industrialization of food, were pretty fascinating. I had a great time speaking with Ken, and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, here is Ken Albala on the Way Around Podcast. Enjoy. All right, so thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really do, really do appreciate it. You know, my pleasure. Um, some of my, some of my viewers, as I was telling you before we started recording, uh, introduced me to you, your blog, your, your. Um, it, it all kind of came about because I was starting to do my own research on how to do make katsubushi at home, mm-hmm. and things like this, and they said like, "Oh, this guy in California actually." was on Japanese TV and he kind of did these things and they kind of bought your books, your noodle book and things like that. And so they're telling me all about you. So, and I understand that you are, well, I guess, first of all, I always have the people um, that come on the show, introduce themselves as how they would want to be introduced because I could say you're a professor at university Pacific and things like that. But I mean, what would you consider yourself? Yeah. Food historian mostly. Um, And uh, you know, I teach my specialties is Renaissance Europe, but I write about everything to do with food, including cookbooks and, you know, food histories and encyclopedias and reference works and basically anything to do with food is what I write about. Um, and a few, a few series with the great courses. So if you, if anyone's interested in watching uh, my food, my whole food history course that I teach here is available through Audible or the great courses. And, um, and I've got a cooking history course that just came out this past year. Um, a historical cooking course, which through the great courses, which was loads of fun. Seems like and in fact, I do katsubushi on that as well. <laughs> that's awesome. I show the whole procedure there. <laughs> it, it seems like you kind of figured out how to like create a job that's like doesn't feel like a job for you. <laughs> <laughs> you got it exactly. That's right. <laughs> like oh, history and food, and I get to cook and eat, and yep, awesome. Yep, yep, yep. So, so I guess the main thing I know that you've written like twenty five books or so, or something around the, in that ballpark, and yeah. about all types of different foods, but because 
this is like a nerdy ramen show that we kind of talk about making ramen a lot. I wanted to focus in on your two-year discovery about, you know, noodle soups and the, the research that you were doing there, if that's okay. Um, could you talk sure. about how you first kind of like how you got into it? And then we can kind of go into the yeah. history of noodle soups that you've discovered through your research. So, so I was um, teaching a course at Boston University in their gastronomy program. And they, it was just for, I think, a few weeks, six weeks. And they put me up in a beautiful um, apartment, high rise, right on, um, on the, the river. And it had an immaculately lovely uh, kitchen with not a single utensil in it. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm not spending six weeks here and not cooking. It would just been crazy, especially, you know, breakfast and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just went down to the, this little Asian grocery store on the corner and said, okay, how do I do this as efficiently as I can without really having any utensils? And I bought a little cut, a little pot, a, a melamine bowl, a few chopsticks, and I saw ramen in there. And I thought, you know, I've never really eaten this. Let me just, let me give it a shot. This sounds like it'll be fine for breakfast. And um, I don't know why I'd never eaten ramen before. There was no, no logical reason. So it was just, so I bought this stuff and it was like fabulous. You know, it was just, just, and I thought, well, if I add, fresh vegetables and maybe some shrimp or add pork to it, whatever, this could be like a really glorious breakfast. And then after every, after a week or so, I just started experimenting more and adding more things. And then finally figured, well, I I know how to make noodles. There's no reason for me not to just do this whole thing myself. And by the time I got home, a couple of months had passed and I realized I was making noodle soup every day for breakfast. And I thought, (laughs) I just have to do this. And you know, for whatever reason, the, the, the topic chose me. I didn't choose it. I didn't wake up one morning and say, I really need to write about noodle yeah, soup. It just kind of happened. And um, from there, figured out I need to know how to make every noodle in the world, basically. <laughs> so that was so that was it, you know. So so where did you start your research on noodle soups? Did you start in Asia because you started with ramen, like just coincidentally? Yeah. Or, oh, okay. Yeah. Say. yeah, and well, everywhere, because the, there's noodle soups most places in the world. Um, mm. You know, there's, uh, with a few weird exceptions, places that eat with their hands don't tend to have noodle soup. <laughs> yeah. You don't dip your hands in the hot soup. They have things like noodles, but not um, not as often. It's yeah. not as ubiquitous. But if you have, and, and what's really weird, another insight that I had is that in some places where they don't use chopsticks, you do find noodles in soup, but never long ones because mm, it's impossible to eat a long noodle with a fork and knife. You need chopsticks, you know, and it's just, and you need to be able to hold the bowl. So it's just a different aesthetic really did you figure out did you were, were you able to discover like where it originated like where the first noodle soups were created or um, um no, no. <laughs> i don't think anyone knows <laughs> that no i mean there's they're there in in china really really early uh-huh. um they're there in the middle east things that are um what they call itria which are kind of long strings in ancient greece that make their way through the muslim world that make their way to italy so so yeah i mean there's there's things that really count as pasta i think mm-hmm. from the first time people grind grain which is which is prehistorically actually oh wow you know it's before 10,000 bc so i'm i'm willing to bet you know even if they you know but the minute they have pottery they can pull soup and they can put noodles in it interesting yeah i i know i don't really know much about food history but it, i found it I find it kind of fascinating because it's something that just connects everybody through this whole mm-hmm human experience that everybody yep. has been experiencing for a decade, a generation. So um, we're really interested in, I was really interested in your, do you, if you have any interest, I mean, insights into like how ramen became a thing in Japan, like the transition from Chinese noodle soups into 
Japanese style ramen. If you've done any research on that, yeah. Well, well, you know, ramen came uh, from China. It's lamian. Is is the? It's just there's no um, L. Yeah, yeah. Japanese. So it kind of um, was there early on, like 19th century, maybe early 20th century, as a street food, and people would make it fresh, you know, and you'd have to buy it from a vendor um, and. There are noodles. There are, of course, indigenous noodles in um, udon is there before thicker noodle, and so is um, so soba made of buckwheat, which is which is definitely there. But I think the ramen really didn't catch on until instant ramen, you know, and that's um, momofuku ando um, in the fifties, learning to package it, and you know, and it's a different it's a different product there also, um, which I, I don't, Americans don't quite realize that in. Japan, the original ramen, the one with chicken flavoring, it's actually soaked into the noodles already. It's not a separate packet. So yeah. you just literally open the packet, throw it in water, and it's done. <laughs> you know, it's it's even simpler. And I'm not sure why in the US we package them separately. And yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought I never thought about that. I I we the people that listen to the show and watch the channel, like they're very nerdy. So they're making their own noodles from scratch, like how you were doing and everything like that. But um yeah, I, we it's kind of like a weird thing because ramen initially was called chukasoba or, or shinasoba, which is basically like Chinese Chinese soba, soba. right? Right, yeah, right, yeah. right. It's not yeah. a nice word, apparently. Now, no, it's a, the shinasoba <laughs> is pretty. Um, it's verging on racist now in Japan. Yeah, I guess. yeah, yeah. yeah. that's exactly what, what I've heard. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, the irony of this whole thing is that, of course, I went out of my way to make homemade noodles from scratch mm -hmm. um and in the wake of that they the there's a believe it or not there's a world instant noodle summit that's held every year um this was in osaka a couple of years ago and they invited me to come be the keynote speaker not realizing that i don't eat ramen, <laughs> ramen anymore and that's what they were there to promote and i kind of said you know the important thing is you don't have to make noodles from scratch, obviously, but but the saddest thing is if you eat noodles by yourself, you know, and you're opening a packet and you know just just downing it as quickly as you can, or I've heard people even just sprinkling the powder on the noodles and eating them <laughs> as is because they're already cooked, you know. Yeah. Um, That's like I, so. So they didn't know what they were getting, I think, <laughs> but it was lovely, and and you know the people were there were were really nice. Um, oh, you know, it was it was actually the you know the the. Um, the Japanese noodle magnates. You yeah, know. yeah. They just yeah. said it. I met. I in fact, I met Momofuku Ando's children. They oh, were all wow. very nice people. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, like that. The 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 soup packet on the dry noodles is like a Ho uh, Hawaii kid staple snack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During my generation, <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, so the reason that I kind of discovered you was through some of the viewers of my channel and the pod listeners to the podcast and. Um, I started trying to figure out how to do my own katsubushi at home. And they said like, oh, there's this guy, Ken, that he blogged about it. And he was on Japanese TV um, showing, like learning how to make katsubushi. And so I watched the whole episode that you're on. Um, it was the one where they, they they went and filmed you at home first and with your wife mm -hmm. and then showing them your smoker and uh, your magurobushi, I guess they called it, the ahi um, ahi slab uh, steak kind of katsubushi. Right, 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 right. yeah and then, and then you went to japan and went to that uh the katsubushi factory and then you went to the the place where they make the kizuriki the shaver right right so that's the one you i that's what i first, watched you oh, saw the first, the first, one? Okay, first yeah. one which was um you know it was a couple of weeks that i spent there and um in several different places around japan which was which was 
an amazing experience. It was just, just absolutely a ball, very hard work. I mean, I didn't realize how much time they spend just like setting up the camera and uh -huh. arranging shots. And so it was a <laughs> lot of waiting around. Um, but they invited me back recently. This was um, the week before the close down, in fact. So it was this past February. Oh. They came and filmed me again doing it the proper way at home because oh, the first time i did it i didn't really know what i was doing i just bought a wedge of ahi tuna yeah, and, yeah you know smoked it and shaved it and it worked okay actually it was fine um and then i learned at the hands of this master in japan who's um yasuhira serizawa um that was just incredible how much i got wrong <laughs> it just i mean it was i mean the things that i didn't realize it's not salted at all yeah it's boiled first, which I just didn't get that part of it. And then the whole um, use of the um, as Aspergillus glaucus, mm -hmm. not, not Aspergillus orizae, which is koji mold. A different kind of mold is on it that I, I had no idea this was this, you know, there was a, a fermentation process also that further dries it out because, the, because it's very moist and humid in Japan. Um, so they need that extra step, but it changes the flavor also. So there's, there's different kinds of katsuobushi. You can buy some that are, that are not fermented, mm -hmm. that are, that cost less. Yes. But, I call but, it ara arabushi. But, and then the, the right. One the and hongare called, katsuobushi yeah. is, the, is the fermented one. And it's, um, it's incredible. Um, and you, you know, I never got it exactly right. <laughs> Let me put it that way. I think I came close. Um, I bought some katsuobushi from Japan, uh -huh. rubbed the mold off, and then rubbed it onto the ones that I had at home, and, uh -huh. and it took. So it was, oh, you interesting. Know, so that, that worked. Because I mean, if you try to buy Aspergillus glaucus, A, you have to be very healthy to use it because you can people get lung infections with that. Oh, wow. Um, but it was... Um, if you try and buy it online, it's several hundred dollars. You can only buy it in enormous bulk. So I was like, <laughs> okay, let me just wipe some on and see if it works. And it did, it worked fine. Um, but it's so dry in California. And I have to admit, I used a dehydrator. Um, there's only a, once one trial that I put it on the roof and it dried very quickly. Um, but <laughs> then bugs attacked it. And I was like, okay, this, this can't be good, the right way to do it. So, so the dehydrator is just easier, I think. Oh, interesting. I have a couple of questions about this. So first of all, like what, yeah. what led you to, I have questions about the TV show and I have questions about okay. the process of making Katsubushi. I guess we'll do the TV show one first because, um, so like, how did you even get how did they find you, first of all? Like, how did they discover you that you were doing this? Or I have absolutely no idea. In fact, the weirdest thing is that they asked, they they must have seen my blog or something. Oh, interesting. And then called me up and said, can we come and watch you do this process? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, why not? It'll be an afternoon. It'll uh -huh. be fun. Fine. Um, and it took all day. I mean, it was just like, we need this shot. And then we need this shot. And, it was, and, I, and I thought like I would just do one, two, three. And they said, we need you to just have the raw material. We want to see the smoking. We want to see the dehydrating part. We want to see that you use it. So I actually made noodles also and fed them. And it was so funny because because the producer at the time was this really thin Japanese woman who didn't speak any English. So <laughs> we were trying to communicate the whole time. She was lovely, but 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 it was just like so like she was talking to them in Japanese the whole time. Yeah, I yeah. had no idea what was going on. And I thought, okay, this will be fun. And then it was done. And I thought, okay, fine, done with it. And about two weeks later, someone knocks on my door here in my office. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know how the hell they even found out where I was and said, you know, you won. 
And I'm like, what do you mean I won? <laughs> what are you talking about? I didn't realize it was, it was a competition. I just thought it was, you know, a little spot on Japanese TV. And they said, yes, you won. We're bringing you to Japan. Okay. I was like, well, when? And they said, in two weeks, we're going. <laughs> so it was totally, they never explained really the whole <laughs> pretext of the thing. They didn't explain that it was a competition that I'd uh -huh. be against other people and that, that only a few they would bring to Japan. And, and, and they, you know, later I found out that people actually applied to be on the show, which I didn't know. They oh, said they were not getting the, the type of people they wanted, I guess. So they just started hunting for them and found me. Fascinating. Totally, totally random. Um, so, so the reaction that that's in the show where they, they come and knock on your door and they have the camera in your face and they give you that thing completely natural. Staged, of course, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was totally staged. But, uh, but, but, but the my first reaction was exactly that. It was like, uh, what are you talking about? You know. But then they said, okay, let's let's have you hold the sign. In fact, uh, I think I have the sign right above me. It's somewhere. Um, <laughs> well, that's the the shop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think the uh, oh, and that's that's the product yeah, yeah. You know, at the place you know i just have this uh wait a minute so i i have i do have this on i think it must be at home interesting yeah anyway. I, I, to be honest i've actually watched that show like episodes of that show with other other people that oh I've yeah it's, and it's I, hilarious and i always yeah. kind of wonder like how do they find these people and the, the second question i had for you about the show was you were talking about how they're staging all these shots and stuff there's a shot of you of you and your wife eating you're eating your udon or your noodles and she's she, there's like a pizza in front of you did they did they buy a pizza and put the pizza in front of you because it's a huge stereotype in japan that americans only eat pizza hamburgers you know hot dogs like these are the three things that japanese people think americans eat so i was kind of wondering if they bought the pizza and put that there oh you guys are just happy i to made eat. it oh you I made it, it. <laughs> from scratch because we were just hanging around and they said what other things could you use katsuobushi for and i said uh -huh. well it's great on a pizza and they said okay make one so i was <laughs> cooking like all day you know and i uh -huh. literally had a flour i made the noodles by hand and pulled yeah, yeah, them yeah. i did the pizza dough and you know made so no i just made that there and and you uh -huh. know most of the, they're eating it you know, and that never made it into the show, <laughs> but, but I definitely made it. That's and the so other funny. funny thing, there were just weird things that didn't really make sense to me, but in context now, I kind of understand it, but I brought presents for everyone that, mm -hmm. that they brought me to visit. I didn't know what was happening. They just said, make sure you have three presents. So, so I said, okay, I'll make some pottery. And I, I'm also a potter. So that's, you know, just this pottery oh, and stuff cool. all over nice. the place. But um, so I made little um, soy sauce, bottles you know for for pouring for having on the table and um presented them you know to, to the people not realizing that that like they really appreciated this mm -hmm. you know i just I, I didn't i didn't know why i was doing that you know yeah like, that's they, a huge part of japanese culture it's yeah. called omiyage where you ha you're supposed to bring something if you visit somebody and that's right. kind of funny like they kind of kept you in the dark but were kind of like totally you to do <laughs> <laughs> didn't explain any of this they just said make sure you do this make sure you do that. and you know i showed up at the airport and had they did not fill me in on a single element of what was happening. They wanted it to be a surprise. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so they, they didn't tell you they were going to bring you to like a Katsubushi factory? Absolutely or... nothing. Oh, no, nope. interesting. No, no. And we went fairly far. I mean, there was mm -hmm. the um, Tuba Mesanjo, where the, where the factory for the Kezuriki was way in the north. And then the um, restaurant was in Tokyo, but the, the, this, the factory made, making the Katsubushi is way down on the Izu Peninsula. So mm -hmm. it was in a in a tsunami 
in a tiny little van over the mountains, like driving late at night. It was like, I thought like, okay, they, they, this was like, you know, being hand bound and gagged and thrown in the back of a van and taken. I had no idea where we were going. And there was actually a really, really bad storm the first night we were there um, in Ugusu, I think. It was a little, nice little port town, beautiful place. And, um, you know, the wind, they bolted up all the windows and everything. And it was just like, where the hell am I? And it was, it was fun. It was great, great fun. Oh, that's so interesting. When I saw the pizza, though, I was like, I guarantee they either bought it and put it there or they, you know, like they could call us when you're having pizza or something. Like it's just, <laughs> it's such a strong stereotype in, in Japan that people eat pizza. But um, well, we so- did. <laughs> I made it last night for dinner, in fact. Uh, that's, that's hilarious. So I also had questions like, what made you start trying to make Hatsubushi? And so, so it was it was entirely um, my sort of aesthetic for cooking is that I want to make it not just as real as possible, but I want to make it as difficult and <laughs> and dangerous as I can. You, you know, I opening up a little uh, jar of instant dashi stock is just not fun, and it doesn't taste that good. It's kind of chemically. Um, making it from, you know, buying the flakes is fun. I do that normally, you know. Um, and I just kind of saw this ingredient and said, as long as I'm going in for the deep, deep dive and I'm going to make, you know, real noodle soups, I want to know how to make, how every ingredient in a dashi stock is made. Um, so the one that you saw on TV, I don't know whether you noticed this also, I also gathered that seaweed. It's California Oh, really? Seaweed. Um, so that was there. I bought local tuna and used it just because I couldn't get a whole uh, skipjack. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, well, let me just dive in, see what happens. How, how difficult can katsubushi be? And I actually used a, um, well, you saw it in the film. I used a wood plane. And yeah. I love the fact that I cut my finger on it yeah. <laughs> doing that. So, and they included it, you know, so, uh, you know, it didn't matter. But um I don't, I, I just thought I, I need to, so, so the funniest part about all this is that the, in the recipe that's in the noodle soup book is actually before they came. It's, that's the one that made it into the book is not the complete one. It's oh, not the one that's, that's, you know, the using a whole, whole uh, tuna, uh-huh. but the whole story was told um, fairly recently, about a year ago in Gastronomica in the journal. If, you, if anyone wants to read, you know, how the whole weird thing unfolds, um, that story's there. Oh, so you actually were making your own kombu too. That's so interesting. Like I, I've been thinking, I'm kind of similar where, well, I'm not, I don't get paid to like it kind of YouTube pays me, whatever, but I don't get paid like a job to like research these things, but I always find it interesting to try to make the core ingredients too. So that's why I've been trying to do this Katsubushi project. And I'm trying to figure out what kind of seaweed in Hawaii I could use. But I think in California, you have a similar kelp at least, where you can kind of dry that and get some. Exactly. And I, out of that. I, just gathered it um, in, I think it was Monterey, that area. Oh, that's awesome. You know, and the, and the kelp, you know, you don't have to use the exact same kind of kombu, the, like, you know, the giant kombu that they have mm. in Hokkaido. It tastes better, <laughs> but but, the, <laughs> but other other kind of uh, kelp is fine. Interesting. Very, very cool. I, I, I actually just have to tell you that someone in the chat said that they actually talked to you at University of the Pacific, um, and they're actually like a ramen person, like a, someone that makes ramen all the time, and I guess they found they found you and the rest. They go and talk to you at your office a couple times or something. Really? Who's this? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't. I don't know his real name. It's just like a username. He just says, "Say hi to the professor for me now that he'll know who I am since I spoke. I only spoke to him on campus a few times, or not that he'll know who I am. But I guess someone goes and talks to you about this kind of stuff. Who also makes a bunch of ramen at home? So I don't know who that is. But, yeah. uh, but hi. <laughs> 
so um so i have a bunch of questions about like what you discovered in terms of like dashi extraction and for making ramen like there's there's basically like the two components are like the soup stocks that you're making with the bones and then the second part is the japanese influences the dashi that they add to that soup stock mm -hmm. and so have, did what what were you exactly were you researching were you researching the science of extraction or were you, were you researching more of the production um, methods or what were well, you what, kind of doing yeah what really got me interested in this in the first place was umami was just trying yeah. to figure out natural sources for it because despite what everyone says i think when you add that sodium atom you know molecule to make it monosodium glutamate mm -hmm. i think it changes the nature of it in a way that it makes taste food good but i think it kind of blows out your taste buds in a way that nothing else tastes good. After try it, try the experiment. Eat it, eat some Doritos, and then see whether you can taste anything else. You can't. <laughs> um, and I, what I found about tasting real dashi is it's subtle. It's not this flavor that goes like wham and hits you in the face. It's one that that's layered and it comes on in different waves of that it that it sort of expands your taste buds, not not blows them out. So um, what I discovered was the the um, glutamates that are in the kelp are different from the iosinates that are mm -hmm. in the um, fish and that you put them to the two together and you get this exponential thing yeah. that, that, um, that works much better in increasing your flavor, you know, your ability to taste things um, that other things do also. I think tomatoes and Parmesan <laughs> do very similar mm -hmm. things, you know, you know, in, you know, I can't explain any of it chemically, but that's what led me to first start thinking about, um, testing these and, and playing with them. And, um, you know, I, my preference, or at least what, what I, the way I include it in the noodle soup book is I do have a handful of mixed stocks, but I think dashi works perfectly beautifully on its own without anything else. And just put the noodles right in the dashi and a couple of vegetables and don't mess with it. That's very different from the, um, you know, the, the milky bones boiled for hours. Yeah, yeah, I done, yeah. did that also, which is great stuff. And I really like, you know, the, the tonkatsu um, ramen and, and actually ended up weirdly, my first trip to Japan, I was in, um, in uh, Fukuoka. So, so, so it was, you know, that's where it's from and tasted it on the street in one of those little stalls that are by the river, which mm -hmm. was incredible as I was writing it. So it was just, just fortuitous, but um I guess with more experience, let, let me put it this way. I've, I, I just keep getting invited to go to Japan. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so I've done, I've done like five trips in the past three years or so, Interesting. Um, which is wonderful. Anyone asks me to come, I just say, yes, I'm there. <laughs> so, so the last time was to, um, was to, um, um, not Osaka. Osaka was the time before, but this this one was the Ritsu Meikan University mm -hmm. asked me to come, and I spent a whole week there going around Lake Biwa, and it was just like as great as it can get because there were no tourists at all. I went to Hekone, which is the the castle, yeah, yeah. you know, along the river, which was I love the scenario. Place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love I love the little 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 cat with the horns, you know, the Hikonyan, Hikonyan. <laughs> so anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. What am I saying? Is that the more I go, the more I taste, and the more differences in ramen there i find there is no one standard ramen recipe or one way to do it and the noodles differ from place to place sometimes they're curly sometimes they're straight the the broth is totally different the things they throw in it is totally different so i think we have a um an incredible we have a stereotype of what ramen should be that is good but i don't think you have to um, follow those rules at all and i don't in the book obviously i'm just yeah i'm Doing whatever tastes good you're preaching to the choir here the people that listen to the show and watch the videos they 
they're the ones who are saying like people should stop eating just tonkotsu ramen. They should try everything else and try. My favorite personal style is like a very fish heavy, um, clean uh, nibo. It's called niboshi ramen. It's like using the little fish to extract the dashi and then using that, yep. just yeah. that and kombu and things and with noodles. So very cool, very cool. Um, so I have a couple. I have a lot of questions from people that you know usually watch the show and they're. This is going to show you like how nerdy the the collective of us are. We can Bring talk about this kind of stuff all the time. <laughs> Sounds great. So, um, well, I, I still have some questions of my own too. So like, have you, in your experiments with making your own kombu and making your own katsubushi, did you discover any kind of like optimum extraction techniques as far as, you know, temperatures, times, or things like this? Did you experiment with those things? Yeah. Um, the, com- the, the seaweed that I can get here, if you cook it too long, it starts to disintegrate and gets really slimy and slimy. you can't even get it out. Uh, of the, the liquid. So what I usually do is I will bring up the water to a boil, put the seaweed in first, leave it there for like an hour, you know, and just and just without it cooking at all, um, take the kombu out, bring the water back up to the boil, turn it off, and then put in the flakes. Um, and I've also found that there's a difference if you use, if you can get really nice clean shaves <laughs> from your from your fish, you can go quicker and it becomes clearer, you know, ideally. Mm-hmm. But I found that that if you're shaving the katsu, the katsubushi yourself, sometimes you get powder, sometimes you get whatever. So I, I don't want to throw that stuff away. So, so I usually just um, throw it all in uh-huh. and then strain it through a, like a coffee filter. Yeah, yeah. And I'll even make extra of that just to have around. Um, I've, I've played around once with dehydrating that. So, so like cooking it way, way, way down and then putting it in the dehydrator flat and making a powder. It was a ton of work and I don't think it was worth, it's supposed to be instant, right? I mean, you're supposed yeah, to be yeah. able to throw it in and cook it, but. Um, you, you tried to make your own MSG basically, like natural MSG. Well, I tried to make instant dashi. Instant dashi. <laughs> like, oh, I see. <laughs> and um, it works with 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 a stock actually. If, if there's no fat in the stock, you can mm. make a, you know an instant powder, you know, like you have in the packets, which works yeah. great. But um, you know, with beef stock and chicken mm. stock, but dashi was just just so much labor. Yeah. For an instant, instant stock, and if I don't have a lot of time, I will just um, boil the the kombu for if I'm using really good stuff. I'll I, I simmer it for five ten minutes, and then throw in the, the flakes and let that rest for five minutes, and then um, and then just use it. You don't you don't have to spend an hour. I think. Uh, something that I found interesting or not interesting, but I wanted your opinion on and to, for you to clarify on the show, they made you, they let you taste the arabushi and the hongarebushi, the, the stocks extracted from them. And on the show, you said you preferred the arabushi flavor better. Could you elaborate a little bit on what, what were the differences were um, and why you preferred that flavor profile a little bit better? I don't know whether I preferred it. It was stronger. It was, oh, okay, it was stronger. a more intense flavor. The, the, it sort of came through really powerfully mm-hmm. and i think i tasted the hungari first yeah yeah um it was it was much milder and really like a subtlety that it takes a long time to appreciate uh-huh. because it was um i don't know whether i would agree with that now I, maybe maybe because <laughs> I, I i seem to recall that i like the other one better well hey it was, so, so i learned the, the only reason i said that is because the when they voiced you over in japanese they said that you said that you like that one better Really, I don't remember that, but <laughs> it was, there was definitely a big difference. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think when I'm making it myself, I usually go for 
as much flavor as I can get. Mm -hmm. So this was sort of surprising. It's kind of like when you taste tea and you're used to drinking really strong black tea that hits you in the face in the morning. And then suddenly you have something really subtle and fragrant. Uh You're like, wait, wait. Something is there something missing? Am I missing something? And it takes time for you really to appreciate it. I think. Well, you see, I, what I when I watched the, sh- the video, it showed like the color difference was pretty, pretty different too. So I I, I haven't really realized like until I started doing this research for my project, I didn't realize that most of the stuff that you buy in stores is arabushi. Like if you buy the packet, it's arabushi. Pretty much you have to buy that the full uh thing and shave it yourself to get. You have to find it first and then shave it yourself to get that you can, experience. You can buy that online. It's, it's yeah, yeah. about $25 and it comes from the company. Uh, there's a supplier in Tokyo, but the place that I learned supplies them. Oh, One okay. of the supplies them. So if you go on Amazon and go look for, for um, Katsobushi, you can buy the whole wedge that could very well have been made by me. <laughs> the few that I made there. Um, you know, they, they yeah, use yeah directly yeah. to the market oh they're not gonna waste those well the likelihood is very small because they had about ten thousand fish the the day, days that i was there and i did two or three of them <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right i got a bunch of listener questions here so uh this is from perez he, this guy is actually one of the people when he found out that you were coming on the show he was very excited because he he read a lot of your books and things so he, he his question is why do people around the world seem to love noodle soups regardless of climate or class um gosh it's a great question they're they're um it's really comforting you know Uh, and i think if you get over the idea that what is comforting is hot and warming because cold noodle soups are great too so so i think it's just that there's there's something about eating starch that and having liquid to wash it down that is just very very soothing um in a way that porridge can be or you know, even just just good noodles on their own. But I think there's something about the soup that is just just hydrating. <laughs> I don't have an answer for the, for you, honestly. <laughs> um, it, but but think about the think about the, the the fuzzy feeling that it gives you when you eat noodle soup, right? I mean, it, it is does. there is the second part to his question was: Is there any relationship between the cultures that tend to like noodle soups? No, it is so random. It, <laughs> Places that, that have wheat, obviously, it's places that have um, utensils that are good for eating noodles. So you tend not to have them in India too much. Although now street ramen is very popular in Bombay, but it's oh. um, but Africa tends not to have many noodles. Um, the New World gets it through Spain. So South South America has fideos and you know sopa de fideos in Mexico, places like that. But there's no connection. <laughs> there's no logical reason. If they have wheat, they probably have some kind of noodle, but. India is sort of the ex- exception to that. Wheat and utensils, it seems to be the only connection. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Very cool. So these are gonna these these next batch of questions are gonna start to get really nerdy because this is the kind of stuff that we think about with him. So if I can answer them, I'll <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. If you can't answer them, then no problem too. So Skivinsky is asking, why do glutamates and other umami components seem to deteriorate so quickly once you make them? And this is something that a lot of people in the ramen community say they they have independently observed with very little scientific backing, but they, they do notice that um, if you try to store a dashi for a long time, you start to lose the perceived umami a little bit after in a couple of days. Um, not being a chemist, I can't uh-huh. give you the definitive answer on this, but I'm pretty sure that they start to deteriorate. Um, the chemicals either dissipate into the air when they're heated or they start to break down. 
uh, is, is that the larger sized molecules maybe are more receptive to our taste buds and that over time they go flat because they they break down that's that's my guess yeah um i can i can Honestly, I was I was just listening to Harold McGee, and he's a he's a friend. I can ask him because <laughs> I asked him, I asked him a few questions when I was writing this book um, on noodle soup, and he had very great answers for me. Of course, you know, um, and I think why why I'm thinking about him is he just came out with a book on smells, and I think what you might be perceiving is the volatile compounds disappear. Yeah, that's they it. don't smell as great after after time because I've I've noticed this too. If I try and keep dashi stock. Um, and reheat it. It's just like something's missing. It's gone. Yeah, away. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, very cool. Um, so <laughs> this shows how nerdy people are here. Um, this question is for Ashy Rain. And they're asking, is any idea why Aspergillus glaucus is a controlled substance in Japan? And I think it's because what you said, right? Like it can actually give you lung infections yeah. and things. People who have um, any any disease that would compromise your lungs, tuberculosis or uh, flu or whatever, it co can colonize inside your lung and make you really, really sick. It's, it's something that typically happens to people. Um, and I think that's why it's controlled, is that they don't want people playing with it at home. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I have actually tried using Aspergillus orizae. And it, it, it doesn't work. It's <laughs> just oh, interesting. Just outside. There's no effect on it. Yeah, I, in the in the show, they kind of explained the re the reasoning behind it, where it's like you're using the mole to extract more of the moisture from inside the fish. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating, because in Hawaii it's so humid too. And it's like I don't know if I'm, I don't know if my katsubushi needs something like that too to pull out the rest, the remaining uh, moisture out of it. Because I've been air drying it, like uh, smoking it, air drying it, but I'm I think when I'm air drying it, it just moisture is going back into the fish after well so here's the key they take it out in the sun and then put it back inside and keep going back and forth and back and forth oh, okay. and I, I don't know whether that was clear in the video yeah, yeah they kind of mentioned that with uh, but i thought that was just to kill the mold so the mold doesn't go all the way in it's more no, for the mold, desiccate the mold changes it changes color it goes from like yellowish to greenish to blue and they're they put it in this very special vented room uh -huh. that um, has low temperature, I guess, so it doesn't absorb moisture again. I see. So, so every day they all get moved outside in the sun, they evaporate and they go back inside to for the mold to grow. Oh. It's really very long, detailed, hands-on process. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Um, this same person asks is, uh, asks, is asking, what do you think of David Chang's paper on Bushi? Um, I tried to do it myself. Um, the same time, well, after, after it came out, and in fact, I think there's, I must have done a blog entry or something in response to, to David Chang, um, using pork, using duck, using a handful of other things that were great. <laughs> they were perfectly fine. Um, and, you know, apart from the labor, uh, you know, involved in doing that, it's, I think it's just easier to take a pork leg <laughs> throw it in the you know a, a bit of whatever protein you're using throw it in and make a proper western stock and then freeze it or do you know preserve it in some other way to do the to make a pork bushi <laughs> is interesting but i don't oh, think the flavor was so dramatically pronounced that you, you'd abandon western techniques for that yeah yeah interesting yeah the, the... But for flavoring yeah actually for flavoring shavings of of cured smoked pork are <laughs> just they're lovely <laughs> It's not it's not umami though. It's not it's not the same thing. Yeah, they 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 say that pork has a little bit of the inosinate, the inosinic acid, like similar to fish, but I don't think it's as much as fish. So 
I'm, I'm not not completely sure if yeah, that I was don't it. Think so yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so here's some other questions. Uh, this is from BSK 6994. Six, Why is umami treated as a foreign concept in European and American amateur kitchens while, you know, in Asia? And I guess I'm adding this, I'm ad libbing a second part of compared to Japan, China, Korea, Asian countries. Um, you have any, we have a know? really weird relationship to it um, in the West, partly because of the supposed, you know, um, Chinese restaurant syndrome, which <laughs> yeah, yeah. Labeled, you know, um, back in the 80s. But on the other hand, MSG is the, dar- you know, MSG has had a revival of people saying, don't worry about it. This is all made up. So, you know, it was complete nonsense. It was a mm-hmm. letter to the, you know, medical journal. It wasn't an actual uh, study. And there's never been any real evidence of it. And on the other hand, people are using umami <laughs> in cooking and, you know, discovering. So, so, you know, I have listened to nutritionists actually say there's no such thing. This is, this is an imagined fad and I don't believe there's a fifth flavor at all. It does affect the taste, but I've heard, you know, respected scientists say this is just a cooking thing, a fad, you know? Um, but we all know, yeah, MSG is something that definitely changes it. <laughs> yeah. And we know that if you use ingredients that have, you know, glutamates in it, the flavor is enhanced. So, so I'm on team glutamate, you know, but, but, um, but why it's new is just because it's gotten re it keeps getting reappraised in Western cooking. And lately it has been very popular. I mean, think of, you know, I heard this, um, Dan, you know, Dan Pashman, who does the sporkful. Anyway, he was on saying, I put MSG in my tomato sauce and, and I put it in my Bloody Mary. And I put, and I'm really of the opinion that then you will not be able to taste anything. <laughs> it may be great. And it may, and for, but to make, use good tomatoes to start with. And you don't need, you need any more chemicals added to it. And I, mm. in general, I don't like using chemicals. Uh, yeah i i I definitely in the ramen community at least there's a competing thoughts schools of thought where some people say like oh msg is like this miracle substance that you should embrace and there's other people that say that um you know you should try to extract everything naturally from dashi components and there's another one another group that small a smaller group that says you can use msg but you have to know how to use it skillfully basically like you know because it's not just uh, a canon you have to use it like um in a very thoughtful way totally agree with that um i'm not against its use and i certainly eat things that contain msg (laughs) but it's like it's like any flavor if you overuse salt you will get so used to really salty food that you need it on everything and nothing tastes good you salt similar to like hot sauce some people like lit hot sauce you know exactly and then food just doesn't taste good unless you're dumping the tabasco out and so i think you know all flavors have their place but if they have to be balanced with other flavors and they need you can't just let let me give you an example of have you ever seen the tahin it's this little powdered lime chili salt combination that goes on fruit in on mangoes and things in mexico anyway you can buy it it's t-a-g-j-i-n it's delicious it's absolutely exquisite you start putting that on your eggs you start putting it on and then suddenly you're going food just doesn't isn't right i need some i need more of this my son's doing that now and it's just like i have to say like let's, let's hide this for just just a few days so your taste buds come back because you 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 grow dependent on that like pecan salty spicy sourness that is a so this is a really interesting thing because you know the 
you're the we were one of the few non ramen heads that I talked to, and a lot of the people that make ramen are very more more umami the better. But you, your argument is fairly convincing in the in the sense that if you ch- if you constantly are just chasing the umami, you're losing the the ability to appreciate these other flavors and components in what you're making as well. So of course, well you know, and this is this is the the I think the problem with most instant ramen is that the flavor is so intense, you don't taste the noodles. Even if you put vegetables in there, they're lost. They're just kind of, you know, and, and I think honestly for the, for the best noodle soup, if you can get like a really good flour, work the hell out of it. So the protein chains make it like really chewy and you have a good texture and flavor. Um, I think with the time it must slightly ferment also, um, you know, just because it's, I, I usually leave it out for five or six hours before pulling or even cutting. I, I think it, it changes the flavor and texture. Um, you don't want to overwhelm that. <laughs> you actually want to be able to taste the wheat and, you know, and whatever other ingredients you're putting in there. I think it's just a better experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's all kind of, the thing about ramen is people get nerdy about every single component. So there's a bunch of people that do like noodles. They test aging for days, aging for hours and yeah, and the other, the other controversial thing is the use of uh, alkaline in there, whether you're using, you know, the, in China, they use um, penghui, which yeah, is yeah, like yeah. that goes in. I've used it and burnt my tongue a few times just because I've added too much. Yeah, I've in Japanese, people- it's called kansui. And- kansui, right, yeah. Yeah, and so people, like, that's kind of like one of the car- uh, criteria to be considered ramen noodles in Japan. It has to contain a portion of that, um, but yeah, it's... I don't think it needs it. <laughs> um, I have used it and I still have a, a big, I've got tons of several different kinds. Um, slightly different ones are used to, to, for making pants it in Philippines, you know, and there, there are different kinds of, you can, you can actually use baking soda. And, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, actually that's Harold McGee's trick also um, that makes it sodium carbonate. But I think it's just, it can be overdone also. Um, yeah. and, and if you're using it, even the slightest pinch will give you that alkalinity. I think for, for us, for people that make ramen, usually it's like 1% max of your total weight of oh, flour. Even less than that. It's yeah. gotta be less than that. Otherwise you're going to, yeah, otherwise you got to have that. You get that smell, the alkaline it's a smell. Weird smell and, yeah. The color changes. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't go yellow. It usually goes gray for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I was a long time too. Like, you know, it's, it's always fun to challenge your preconceived notions because for a long time, I was like, oh yeah, you got to add kansui to, if you're going to make ramen noodles. But I taught my brother-in-law how to make noodles the ramen way. And then he basically like, I don't like kansui, so I don't add it. And he, he made some noodles and I was like, these are still okay. Like they're still, they're still noodles. And he just added, used egg instead of the kansui. And I was like, kind of still tastes like, I mean, it's not too far away from what I was making. So it's kind of like good to always challenge. Like, what do you, yeah, well, you know, I, in all honesty, I I don't oh, follow any traditions in, in making mm-hmm. noodles, and most of the techniques I figured out myself, including pulling them, which is you know, is a very very traditional way to do that I just never got good at, so I uh-huh. pull them individually. But but I think the um, there are other. I think if you get closer to just using really good flour and really good water, all sometimes also makes a difference. You you'll taste the wheat <laughs> if you add in tons of other things. Um, I think you're, you're missing out a bit. 
I don't know. Yeah. But, you, but you know the slipperiness you do want so i'm i'm yeah, i'm, yeah. I'm going to contradict myself here there's a there's a really famous ramen chef in new york city who was on this show um nakamura uh he has he runs this nakamura ramen shop he's one of the consultants for like sun noodles and things he's a yeah. pretty big name guy um but Those he kind of his his uh philosophy is you shouldn't really add um in, in japan there's a concept called kakushiaji which is like hidden flavors or and, but his his philosophy is he want anything that he adds into his ramen he wants people to be able to taste like in, in a sense zero hidden flavors you want you want to be able to taste anything that's in there is in there for a purpose so yeah, yeah. and you know i i went slightly overboard with that the book in that i threw everything imaginable into a noodle <laughs> you know often dehydrating it and grinding it and you know vegetables and noodles are just so, <laughs> they're fabulous and you can definitely taste them you know the color and um, in one experiment, I took um, an entire salad, deconstructed it, and made lettuce noodles, cucumber, carrot, red cabbage, tomato noodles, um, and it was great. It was just such a lovely, lovely set of noodles mixed up together. Wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I, I know that from the show that udon was kind of like your primary noodle of choice, it seemed like, when you were doing this thing, the, the dashi experiments, or was it? Um, no, no. I mean, in the book, it's covers the whole globe. So okay. I make every single kind of noodle you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and, and many that don't exist. I made noodles out of crickets, which I don't recommend. That's really <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> the only one that I said, don't do this, but you know. Like cricket flour, you mean? You use cricket yeah, flour? Cricket flour. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a shop in Tokyo now that's selling cricket ramen. Um, I don't know. I, I, I know I had some friends that went there a couple of times. They said it's pretty wow. good, but. Um. Uh, <laughs> you know what it smells like? It smells like pet, pet shops. You know when you oh, go I can to imagine. Shop, yeah, that yeah. Weird, dank aroma that they think <laughs> to, the, to the reptiles. That's what it smells like. I can imagine. Yeah, because that's what they're feeding them. That makes yeah. sense. But, but on the other hand, you know, you put something like an artichoke into a noodle, and not the you know commercial ones usually are. There's a little green food coloring and artichoke mm. flavoring. I did 50-50 artichoke to, to flour by by volume, and. They're these bright green, like explosively artichoke. You put them in an artichoke stock. You put baby artichokes in the soup with it. And it was just like, this is, if you like artichokes, that just goes, you know, just completely incredible. Fascinating. Like the, there's a kind of like a vegan ramen scene too. That's kind of like a micro scene of the ramen scene. And that kind yeah. of stuff is pretty interesting because they're, they're always battling. Like, how do I get more umami or just better flavor for my, for my ra vegan ramen without having to use animal bones and animal products and well they they have it. artichokes does that because you know how artichokes have this thing called um i'm forgetting what it's called now <laughs> it's a chemical that opens your mouth in the same way that glutamates do oh interesting it's called um uh chinarin i think sinarin or something like that, mm -hmm. that is in cardoons and artichokes and that family of thistles that um anethol also is in there so so like there's chemicals that definitely mimic what 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 happens with um glutamates interesting oh that's 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 something that people should probably are going to start researching after this yep. podcast cool let's get back to some questions uh, this one is zinfandel what do you think of instant dashi and you kind of answered that already but uh... you know i am um, the hondashi brand is where uh -huh. i started really it's uh -huh. so salty and so so intense that if you use even more than a pinch in something. But I've actually found other brands that don't have salt, that are just dehydrated mm -hmm. dashi stock. They're okay. And I mostly use them if I'm cooking like an, 
an egg custard or something and I just want a quick hit of dashi and I don't have a whole lot of time, you know, I have my kezariki stands right in front of my cutting board. <laughs> and sometimes they're just like, oh, I don't have the energy to do this and make talk <laughs> and whatever. So if I need a little sprinkle of something, I'll do it. And right now I'm, um, I'm doing a book on breakfast. So, so the, the speed of everything is kind of a consideration. So I'm, I don't want to do anything that's, you know, going to take an extra 20 minutes to, to yeah. put together. So in that case, the good I, I don't remember the name of the brand, but it's Japanese. It comes in these little long paper two sleeves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I have some in my pantry. Yeah. It's actually good. <laughs> yeah, they're not bad. Cool. Um, this is from, from a listener, Renee. How, how have noodles changed human culture and why? <laughs> so, so the long stand running joke among food historians is that whenever they write a book about a single subject, they argue that it is the most important thing that <laughs> you know, influenced human history. Uh, uh. And, and it's just a running joke. And I did a little book on pancakes in which I made that claim saying, <laughs> change the you know tides of, of wars and politics and everything. And people didn't realize I was being being facetious. facetious <laughs> yeah. One reviewer even said, this guy is taking himself too seriously. And I'm like, Look in the back of the book, they're made up references. <laughs> anyway, so noodles did not change the course of history. I'm sorry to say, but they, but they are, they're important because, let, let me be serious, is that when you have a grain staple that is that high in protein, it can actually support a civilization, be the mainstay. When you have, don't have a lot of firewood, you know, to run an oven or to heat a fire that's going to, you know, bake flatbreads or something like that. Noodles are really, really the quickest way to make, to get nutrition out of that. Um, more so than if you were using like a whole grain and boiled it in a pot, because then your body takes energy to digest the mess, you know, the mm -hmm. exterior of the grain and whatever. And even so, so if you're grinding it up, making a noodle is the easiest, most digestible way to get that, the nutrients from the plants using very little fuel to just heat up the water and anything that just dissipates into the water you're you're eating also so That's you true. know like yeah. in china they drink the the water that the noodles have been boiled in um and if it's a soup base obviously it's just it's the most economical and nutritious way to make use of wheat i think interesting never see that's why it's kind of good to talk to people outside of the bubble because we don't think about these kind of things. We just think about we just think more how to get more umami out of things and squeeze it out. Uh, what okay, um let's see, there's a lot of questions here, but they're kind of I'm trying to sift through the ones that you've already kind of answered. Um what are some good substitutes for people? This is from Galaxion 666. What are some good substitutes for people that don't have access to things to make dashi? Or like, you know, um, I think he's thinking in terms of dashi. So like, if you can't, don't have access to kombu, katsubushi, niboshi, shiitake mushrooms, like what are some, oh. some uh, substitutes that you could kind of use to, that could be used in a similar fashion, I guess. Um, so you're talking about like, just going into a standard American grocery store and. <laughs> I guess, I mean. You're going to make know. something very different. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I think my my sort of approach to all noodle soups is that if you have a decent stock so buy some pork bones buy like a pork neck or something cook simmer it for a whole day 
<laughs> you know, with with some onions and carrots and celery and you know whatever vegetables you want, you're gonna have a good stock to start with, right? Take whatever pasta you can find and just put it in there. You know, if you if you all you can find is spaghetti, spaghetti in a really good stock is great. And put in fresh vegetables, you know, add some bits of carrot and add um, if you can find any kind of seaweed. Obviously, you can buy all this stuff online. You can buy all the ingredients online. But if you if you really think I just want to walk into my supermarket and be able to make a decent noodle soup and not open a can, obviously, that defeats the point, then I would say buy bones, you know, um, buy some chicken feet <laughs> to make a, make a chicken stock or buy um, pig's feet are great too. Um, and and I think you'll have something really tasty and good. You know, That's, that, that's interesting. Do you, do you feel, it's a thought that I never thought of before, but do you think that stock making in general is kind of, I don't know how many Americans do stock make stock on their own anymore. It's more like you just buy the box and you can use. The irony is that they make bone broth, which is <laughs> kind of stock, right? Uh -huh. Already just not flavored well. Um, <laughs> not flavored well stock. And I hope that trend is going away. But if you just, but now people are buying it, you know. But but the net effect of that is that bones for making soup are now expensive. If you go to the supermarket and say I want a shin bone, it used to be they would give it to you almost practically yeah, for nothing. Yeah. And now it's it's kind of expensive to keep in the freezer, but but I would say you're right. Most Americans don't make stock. I've been doing stock for about a decade now, not quite every week, but but often at least every few weeks. I will just buy up whatever. If chickens are on sale, I'll buy a couple of whole chickens. Um, I you know if I see some pig's feet or I see lamb neck bones or I see and I throw them all together. I don't I don't even just you know I don't care about making. And the reason that I was doing this to start with, actually started before this noodle soup book. It started with a a, a set of books that were about um, um, real cooking from scratch. You know, and weirdly after the noodle soup book was done, I did another one on aspic, which is all about making stock, you know, from, from gelatinous bones. So I've been doing that for about a year and a half from everything you can imagine from swim bladders of sturgeon to make Isinglass to, um, to, you know, ev and everything, you know, that you can possibly <laughs> imagine. Um, ivory was the one thing I, I stopped short at, but, yeah. uh, but heart's horn, which is stag's horns. I did. Uh -huh. so, so there's, you know, there's, um, you, there's there are very very simple stocks you can make very quickly but but by and large you just throw things in a pot and let them simmer gently and you'll have beautiful stock and and it's and i actually did an experiment that involved tasting the stuff in the can the stuff in the boxes the stuff from the concentrate which i do use in a pinch if i don't have and then stuff that i'd made um and you have to wean yourself off the cans or the bullying cubes are the worst. I never, that's <laughs> just salt chemicals. Yeah. Um, but the, they are so intensely flavored with additives and other crap that you, they will flavor everything intense, so intensely that you can never taste anything else. Um, I think when you start to appreciate stock and you wean yourself off of those, you come to really make, delicate fragrant you know ones the stock i have probably have i don't know a couple of gallons in my freezer now that are in these little little you know sort of plastic containers and they um just the aroma you can still smell the carrots and the celery in them and you can still you know they're it's just it's just a different different aesthetic and, and it 
doesn't really take a whole lot of time. I spend a Saturday or Sunday, maybe I'll, you know, get a lot of bones or I keep them in the freezer and I'll just empty out the freezer of all my bones, throw them in a big pot, put it outside on top of the barbecue so it doesn't steam up the whole house. Yeah. And it's hot. It's always hot. I'm in California, so it's always hot. It's just turned cold. It's the first time I'm wearing a sweater since March. And, um, and then all the steam that comes off just goes outside. You don't have to worry. Do you? Th- it's such an interesting thing. Like, do you think that, how does that affect people that make food for other people? So if everything that you buy at the store that's pre-made is so uh, powerfully flavored, like how does that affect the cooking methods that people choose to use if you're preparing food for other people? It means their cooking disappears eventually, right? Because the industry has it in their interest to make you not cook. So you buy more pre-prepared things from them. If you buy a potato, what does that cost? 30 cents, 50 cents. If you buy tater tots, it costs $3 and 54, you know, and it's because they've shredded it up and added the flavorings and put oil on the outside. So they make much more money off of it. So it's, so it's in their interest to prevent you from cooking from scratch because they don't make money then, right? You know, groceries, produce is not a big money-making venture. Yeah. It's, the, it's the stuff that's frozen and, you know, pre-prepared. And, and obviously, you know, if you're going the route of fast food or, you know, whatever, then it's even more so. Fascinating. Yeah, like how could you even compete with, like if, if what I'm kind of hearing is that, like to fully appreciate things that are made from scratch with a lot of time and dedication, you're going to lose a lot of that hit you in the face or hit you in the mouth, superpower, supercharged flavors. Right. And who, who wants to be, sometimes it's good to be hit in the mouth, you uh-huh. know, but, but uh, I think, I don't know you, when we wonder why don't children like their vegetables? Well, it's obvious because they're eating Doritos, you know, <laughs> or, or a flaming hot Cheeto. And I, ha- and I will <laughs> admit they are delicious. They're yeah. incredible. You know, it's just like the flavor. If you're bored, man, that will just make you excited as hell. But don't expect to taste anything else for the rest of the day. Fascinating. It's, it's, yeah. You know, it's just just blows out your taste buds. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, I experienced this myself and I can I consider myself as someone who tries to cook from scratch most of the time. Most things making ramen from scratch is whatever but when i went to japan and i went to dinner at my friend's house he served this um it's called kuzu kuzu for dessert it was dessert and i put it in my mouth and it, i couldn't taste any sweetness at all it just tasted like like almost like a bitter jello kuzu but, you're talking about right? yeah kuzu yeah yeah and but for, no, but for japanese but for uh, yeah 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 that's to say it, they make this dessert out of it yeah. but for japanese people that is a dessert that's sweet to them but my american palate is just destroyed by how yeah. sweet American desserts are that I could not appreciate that at all. And so his daughter was just going to tell him that that I, that I have um, tasted in Japan where upon your first tasting them, you go, what's happening here? (laughs) (laughs) And, but you have to sit back and stop and just let the experience go over you, man. I was in, um, what's the name of this, the town, um, the city where the deer are wandering all over the place. Oh, it's Nara. Called, it's called, and, and, Nara, right. It was yeah, the first yeah. capital, right? So I was there and it was rainy and cold and I, you know, pet the deer and saw the temples and it was lovely. I love the place. But I wandered up into the hills above the, the temples and it was just, just this little shop where they were serving, you know, lunch and whatever. And I went in and I saw mushroom soup on the menu. I said, that sounds fine that sounds lovely and they brought out this little bowl that had the most intriguing texture was almost viscous and 
the flavor was like when I first tasted it, I thought this doesn't this doesn't remind me of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup. <laughs> but it like unfolded in all sorts of interesting ways. It was among the most delicious things I've ever eaten. And it was like, you know, I spent two dollars on it yeah, or something. Yeah. It was warming and just this mushroom flavor. Eventually I got it, you know, and and I think that that's true of a lot of foods that people just don't get because they're subtle and nuanced and you know the the i'm trying to think of foods that are like that in general tea can be that that way often um vegetables definitely and you know if you if you over if you're if you're used to like eating your broccoli with a ton of cheddar cheese sauce over (laughs) it you're never really gonna like broccoli yeah yeah Interesting. Is there any food that Americans do appreciate the subtlety to like, have you found like, like, I can't, I'm trying to think of one now that because we, we just to bring yeah, it back to ramen, um, you know what it is? It's, it's local produce that people appreciate. Like when I was growing up, the corn in New Jersey was just phenomenal. So with the tomatoes there, um, and I've, you know, I'm in California now. That's supposed to be wonderful. They're, they're not as good as those. <laughs> and I don't think it was because I'm older and my taste buds have dulled. But yeah. um, but there was something about, and you didn't do anything to them. In fact, the corn yeah. was good raw. You know, you didn't, we didn't even have to cook it. It was good boiled for a minute. You know, that, that was basically it. But I think, if anything, Americans do appreciate really, if you live in a place where there are apples, when the apples are just off the tree and crisp and and tart and you know it's like we we get that we we understand it um i think there are probably people who really can appreciate grass-fed beef which is a weird thing it's not it's not like you know the standard beef has got all this you know fed grain has got a very different kind of fat tastes different the grass-fed beef is is tougher and it's got just a, a more intensely beefy flavor i think um that that a lot of people or many people prefer you know yeah just to tie it back to ramen that's like the the struggle that a lot of people that make ramen and sell ramen in restaurants they open these shops and things is that the american palate is so used to these powerful flavors and while a lot of the more um nuanced japanese ramens are more much more subtle like you have these shoyu ramen shio ramens that are like these light broths that are more more balanced than a hit you in the face tonkotsu, heavy, thick, creamy thing. And so a lot of the favorite uh, ramen of people that make ramen is are these light, delicate broths, but they can't sell it to the American people. Most of the time, they have a very hard time selling it, so they have to make tonkotsus and things. But, you know, this is true of all food that gets imported into the U.S. <laughs> it becomes a stereotype of itself, and the ones <laughs> that sell really well... Uh-huh everyone who goes into the restaurant expects to have that. So if they're given something else, they, they, they don't buy it, you know? So, yeah. so, you know, I feel, I feel bad for restaurants that try to sell food from anywhere else in the world <laughs> because they have to place, you know, to their audience, you know, and it means that that food changes in ways that becomes, you know, Thai food is totally, you know, it doesn't reflect what everyone goes and they expect there must be pad Thai on this menu, right? Uh-huh. Whereas in in Thailand, it's not, it's not the <laughs> ideal. You know, they don't uh, eat it. Yeah, General So's chicken is a thing for a reason. Yeah, uh, very cool. Um, let's see if there's any other questions. Um, in, okay, so let's let's see what's important thing there. Okay, so this is a good final question because you're a food historian. Like, what do you think, what is it important to look at when you're attempting to understand the history of a food? 
Um, this is from Hella Ramen. Sorry, I got to get his and name there. the natural environment that gave rise to it. Understand the human labor that went into making it. Understand the context of who consumes it and why. Is it a ritual food? Is it an everyday thing? Does it have meanings that are embedded in the culture? Is and then. I think, how does it reflect that people's values? Is it something that they make together or that they share together in a you know, meal that's, that's a special occasion? Or is it something they grab and down and you know, run uh, on the go? Um, I, think, I think food reflects more about a culture and more about individual personality too, what people like. I always say, you know, uh, like, like um, you know, Briat Severin said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are, right? Because a person's personality comes through and their, their food preferences. But I think in general, if you're talking about a dish, um, understanding how it was grown, where it came from, why it developed the way it did, how it was cooked, gives you insights into, into a culture that you can't get through any other medium because everyone eats, right? It's the one thing that's universal across all humanity in a way that not everyone does ballet, plays baseball or just you know but everyone has to eat so so i think their their food choices are much deeper reflections of themselves and their culture and their religion and their you know their personalities thanks yeah thank you so much man um ken could you please tell everybody where they could find you on the internet or your books yeah, and your so, things so, like that? So all my books are on amazon um you know or wherever you'd like to buy books that <laughs> they're there um and um, my the great courses has my two courses that are uh, um, my food history and my history of cooking class. Audible also has one and has a history of bourbon that I did just this past year for Audible, which was which was fun, very well received. Um, and there's a ton on YouTube too. My whole history of alcohol and intoxicants is <laughs> just on YouTube for free. If you want to watch it, it's it's there as well as Renaissance courses and uh, my history of medicine bits of my history of medicine course which i'm teaching now are on uh, on youtube and i don't blog very very often anymore but it's still there every month or so i'll post something and you'll see that i'm i have been working on jello for the past year or so and just recently i'm working on breakfast so that's mm. that's turning out to be fun i made muffin i made um, biscuits today the traditional way for the first time ever <laughs> it just blew me away. It was so good. They're just oh. buckets of butter on them, but <laughs> um, but they're great, great thing. That's that's, that's awesome, man. I, I really do appreciate your your insights into this, and and I I agree that if we can figure out how to get the American palate back towards appreciating core ingredients, that'd be that'd be a great thing. Do you have any social media or anything that people can contact you or email is yes. the best? Or oh, what's please. the best? Way? More important than anything, go on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. Everything <laughs> Facebook. Is posted there. <laughs> Follow me on Facebook, um, befriend me. I think I only have about five friends left. I keep getting rid of people who I don't know and then have to take on more, but but definitely follow me there. Um, if you're interested in fermentation, there's the Cult of Pre-Pasturian Food Preservation, which is my fermentation blog, uh, not blog, a group. Um, oh, and, yeah, there's a big there's a big fermentation subculture in ramen too because of some other yeah, ingredients. And so yeah, yeah, that that's, that's what I did before noodles was fermentation. Um, and... Uh, there's also show me your aspects if you're really into jello that's i've been there for the past year or so which is a great group and it's like 40 something thousand people it's a, it's a good group um and 
I am, they call me their j- uh, jiggle daddy. <laughs> so I don't know why. That's what they decided. So that's what I've been doing. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ken. Uh, sure. I'm just going to close the recording and just talk a little bit. and then. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much again to Ken for coming on the show. I thought his points about overdoing it with umami is something I'd never really thought about and something that I think deserves some thought by anyone who's making food for other people. Anyways, I had a great time talking with Ken and his research is just fascinating. In the show notes, I'm going to link up all of Ken's books as well as his blog and his Facebook if you want to get in touch with him. As always, you can find me on Instagram at wayoframen. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash wayoframen. I post these episodes up there earlier than they're released as a podcast. And I do some live streams there where we kind of break down Japanese recipes, do some live translations and stuff. I'm planning to do more stuff with the Patreon next year, but I have to figure out what I'm going to do yet. But you can sign up there at patreon.com slash wayoframen. Or if you're in the market for some really high quality Japanese ramen ingredients, you can go to wayoframen.com slash shop. I just added some great shiitake mushrooms and some rausu kombu in there. So go check that out. If you somehow found this podcast without knowing about my YouTube channel, um, you can follow my ramen journey there as I try to figure out how to make ramen on my own here in Hawaii. Just search Way of Ramen on YouTube and I should show up. Thank you guys all so much for listening and for all the support. I'll see you all in the next episode. Peace.